Before we begin this morning, I want to remind you that next Sunday we have a special day planned. It's called Focus Sunday. We're going to have a guest speaker here who's going to deliver a series of lessons around the theme of focus on your finances. And it's going to be a, a great series of lessons regarding stewardship. So we encourage you to make plans to return next Sunday. We will have a, a joint Bible class at 9 a.m. here in the auditorium, followed by the morning worship service. Then we'll have a, a potluck meal and a 1 p.m. service to follow. So please make plans to join us next Sunday for Focus Sunday with our emphasis on, on, your, on finances. It's going to be a great series of lessons. And now this morning, I want to start with a story I heard about a preacher who was standing at the back of the auditorium after services one Easter Sunday. And he's there shaking hands with people as they exit. Noticed one man from town who only ever came to worship on Easter. And so when that man came near to him, he grabbed him by the hand and the preacher said, Man, you need to join the army of the Lord. And that man looked to his right. He looked to his left. Leaned in real close to the preacher. And he said, Shh. I am in the army of the Lord. The preacher said, you are? He goes, yeah, I'm in the secret service. <laughs> you know, this weekend usually brings out our, our biggest, largest attendance of every year because this particular Sunday is the one that follows Passover and is therefore the one associated most closely with the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Now, we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus by gathering every Sunday, every Lord's Day we're here, and we commemorate His death every Lord's Day as we partake of the Lord's Supper as we did just a moment ago. But this Sunday just seems to get that extra bit of attention because of when it occurs. And since the events surrounding the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are a, a little bit more on people's minds at this time of year, I want to challenge you to stand with me at the foot of the cross today. I want us to go to Calvary this morning and spend some time examining what's going on there. In particular, I want you, and myself included, to consider where you would be standing if you were at the foot of the cross that day. And here's what I mean. When you read the gospel accounts of what's happening at Calvary, you'll discover that there are several different groups there, present during the crucifixion. And each group is engaged in different activities. Each group is reacting to and, and relating to Jesus in different ways. And I want each of us to consider, based on our, our current spiritual standing, with which one of these groups we would have been associated. So let's start with this group. Would you have been among the crowd who Jesus? Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 27, verse 39 through 43, where Matthew describes this crowd. Matthew chapter 27 verse 39 through 43. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who, <coughs> excuse me, I was trying to get loud there, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. 
So all the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Then let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. That's the crowd. This crowd is antagonistic. This, this crowd is volatile. This crowd is angry. They hate Jesus. They're shouting insults at him. They're making fun of him. They spend their time at the foot of the cross mistreating, abusing, harassing the Son of God. So ask yourself, would you have been numbered with this group? Would you have been among the group who mistreated and abused the Savior? Now, I'm certain the fact that you're sitting in that pew this morning or you're joining us online right now, I'm certain you would say to yourself, no, not me. I, I wouldn't have been part of the crowd. There's no way I would be shouting insults at Jesus. There's no way I would be making fun of Jesus. I'm certain that all of us would quickly claim that we would not be a part of this group because we love Jesus. Because we're here in person or virtually to worship Jesus. We're, we serve him. That alone should serve as evidence that we don't hate Jesus, that we would never mistreat Jesus. And I would tend to agree with you, but, but let's make a couple of observations about this crowd for a moment. First thing to pay attention to about this crowd is they are fickle. It was just five days earlier that this crowd was celebrating the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It was just a handful of days prior to this one that the crowd is shouting, Hosanna! That the crowd is declaring Jesus as a Savior. That they're acknowledging His kingship. It's just hours earlier, you could say, that this crowd is devoted to the riding into town on a donkey. This crowd, just a few days ago, was celebrating Jesus during that triumphal entry. But after the triumphal entry came the cleansing of the temple in particular, where Jesus entered that temple complex and he drove out all the buyers and sellers got all of the animals out there, turned over all the money tables, and created such a chaotic scene that I'm certain some people lost interest. I'm certain when Jesus went into that temple and, and, and cleansed it, he confronted the sin of those present. That he did something that made them uncomfortable. He challenged their preconceptions. And their celebration started to die down. It reminds me of the rich young ruler we read about in Matthew chapter 18. You remember that guy? 
he approached Jesus and asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? A great question. A question all of us want the answer to. And Jesus said, you keep, keep Mosaic law, keep the law of Moses, and, and you will. And this guy responded, I've done that. In other words, this guy had been a faithful follower of God. He had done his very best to be obedient in all things. And his conscience was clear. He could say, yes, I've kept those laws. And Jesus said, well, then there's one more thing you need to do. Sell what you have and give it to the poor. This guy had a lot of possessions. This guy was wealthy. And that one struck a chord. That one hit a nerve. That one, that instruction made him uncomfortable. And so we're told in Matthew chapter 18 that that rich young man walked away sorrowful because Jesus had finally told him to do something that was outside of his comfort zone. So I want you to think this morning, would you be numbered with a group whose devotion to Jesus dissipated when, he, when his teaching stepped on their toes? Would you have been part of a group who stopped following Jesus when his teaching rubbed them the wrong way? Would you be a part of a group who turned on Jesus when he started calling out their sin? Would you be a part of a group whose faithfulness was conditioned on comfortable discipleship? Because that's what this crowd is. And unfortunately, that's what some Christians are today. But there's another thing you need to notice about this crowd. Not only are they fickle, they're easily influenced. Did you notice that Matthew identified the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders as being among the crowd? That means that you have the most well-educated biblical scholars, the community leaders, and the overseers of the temple all leading the charge against Jesus. with such important figures from the spiritual community opposing this guy on the cross, it would be hard for an average Joe not to conclude that he needed to be opposed to that guy too. Think about Peter for a minute. When you go to Galatians chapter 2, Peter has traveled to work with that multi-ethnic congregation in Antioch. And when he arrives there, everything's great. And he's working with and associating with and fellowshipping with everyone. But some guys from Jerusalem show up. And Peter stops affiliating himself with Gentile Christians. This is Peter. This is the guy who was in the garden and tried to cut off somebody's head. This is the guy who got to walk on water for a moment. This is a guy who preached the first gospel sermon, and 3,000 people came forward. This is a guy who would eventually become an elder in the church. This is a guy who was part of Jesus' inner circle. This is a guy who is a spiritual hero, and yet some random members of the church in Jerusalem show up, and he changes how he acts. Peter gave in to peer pressure in that moment. And guess what? So did a lot of this crowd. 
This is a group who in the moment, knowing what they've witnessed all week in the life of Jesus, watching Jesus ride into town on that donkey, knowing that he had just raised Lazarus from the grave, knowing that what he preached was not contradictory to Scripture. This is a crowd who was so easily influenced by peers that they changed their tune. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Would you be numbered with a group who sought the approval of its peers? Would you be numbered among a group who would rather be politically correct than spiritually right? Would you be numbered among a group who caters to the most vocal rather than the most righteous? Would you be part of a group who could be swayed simply by peer pressure? Because that's what this crowd was. And unfortunately, that's what some Christians are today. See, at first glance, it's easy to say I wouldn't be in the crowd, but when you really consider who this crowd was and how they got to that point, it would be very easy for one of us to be in that crowd. But I don't want to just focus on the crowd. Let's also consider the soldiers who were there. Would you have been among the soldiers who ignored Jesus there? Look with me at John chapter 19, particularly verses 23 and 24. That's John chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, which says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now that's not a passage you're going to be drawn to that often. It just tells us what the soldiers were doing in the moments that Jesus was hanging on the cross. You know, when we think about the soldiers, we tend to focus on how they physically mistreated Jesus. How they beat him. How they drove the crown of thorns into his head. How they flogged him. And how they drove those nails through his hands. We focus on the physical abuse they inflicted on Jesus. But I want you to think about these guys a little differently. These guys were there that day just doing the job. For them, it was a routine Friday ex execution. So after they got him on the cross, they sat down to go through his stuff. These guys are so busy trying to profit off of Jesus that they failed to see Jesus. They were too preoccupied with other interests to pay the guy on the cross any attention. And sadly, they're the closest ones to him of anyone at Golgotha that day. So ask yourself, would you be numbered among a group that is too busy to notice the Savior? Oh, certainly not. We're believers. We're faithful disciples. We're here to worship God. There's no way we'd be too busy for Jesus. Let's switch to the podium. There's no way we'd be too busy for Jesus. We're here this morning. We're devoted. You remember the story about Mary and Martha? Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. 
Jesus comes to their house and you have these two sisters, one who plants herself at the feet of Jesus and another who stays so busy with hostess duties that she gets upset. Mary takes the time to soak in every word that Jesus has to say that day. But Martha never hears anything Jesus says. And she gets so upset with her sister for leaving her to do all the work that she goes and complains to Jesus. And Jesus' response is that Mary had chosen what is good. Martha was too busy to take time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Now, do you ever get too busy for Jesus? I mean, it's not like we have jobs that we have to go do. It's not like that we have deadlines to meet, quotas to be filled, or projects that must be completed. It's not like we have responsibilities, right? It's not like we have children at home that require our attention. It's not like we have children who have commitments that we have to make sure that they fulfill, that we have to make sure the homework's done. We have to make sure that the baths are taken, that the practices, the recitals, the performances are all attended. It's not like there's chores at home that need to get done. It's not like there are bills that have to get paid, rooms that have to get cleaned, yards that have to be upkept. No, we're not busy. How easy is it for you to go through your week and stay so busy that your Bible never gets open, that prayers never get said? That Bible classes don't get attended. That fellowship doesn't happen. We make excuses about being too busy and we become too preoccupied to give God priority. And that's exactly what's happening with these soldiers. Now granted, these soldiers are executioners. I mean, there is a centurion in the story who by the end of that, even, that afternoon declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he may have been the one in charge there, and he may have been the one paying attention, but these average soldiers, they are so busy worrying about what they're going to gain that day that they're not paying attention to Jesus. Is that you? Would you have been among them? Not because you would have driven the nails necessarily, but because you would have been too busy to give Jesus any of your attention. Because that's what's happening here. Now, you might be thinking, I wouldn't have been among the crowd, and I wouldn't have been among the soldiers, because you know what? I would have been among the disciples. Would you have been among the disciples who abandoned Jesus? Now, at first thought, you automatically want to be associated with the disciples, right? Because throughout the ministry of Jesus, that would be the correct choice. But on this occasion, despite their intimate relationship with Jesus, their positioning at the cross is less than ideal. Now, for the record, when I talk about the disciples in this scenario, I'm not talking about that small contingent of women 
who got close enough to the cross to converse with Jesus. I'm really talking about the rest of the disciples. Those who are summarized by Luke's statement in Luke chapter 23 and verse 49, which says that all of, of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Think about that for a moment. The people who were closest to Jesus during his ministry are farthest from him at his death. The disciples distanced themselves from Jesus way back in the Garden of Gethsemane. After Jesus essentially turned himself in and rebuked Peter's swordmanship, we're told that his disciples all left him and fled, according to Mark chapter 14 and verse 50. None of his disciples stood by his side during those trials. Oh yes, Peter and John went there. Peter stood outside in the courtyard. John got to go inside but there's no account of John standing up for him, of John defending him. John was just as guilty of abandoning Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane as all of any of them. Now, why do you think his disciples remained so far away from the cross? Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they kept their distance out of fear that they might be identified as one of his followers. And if they were identified as one of his followers, might they succumb to the same fate as him? Isn't that part of the reason Jesus, I mean, Peter denied his relationship with Jesus out of fear? Is that why sometimes we distance ourselves from Jesus? Out of fear of how it's going to look to the people we are associated with? out of fear of what kind of persecution we're going to receive. Or maybe it's not fear that's driving them. Maybe it's shame. Maybe they didn't want to get too close to the cross because after deserving him, they couldn't look him in the eye anymore. You remember what happened after the rooster crowed the third time and Peter had denied Jesus the third time? We're told in Luke chapter 22, verse 61 and 62, that, that the rooster crowed that final time and Jesus turned and looked at Peter, causing Peter to remember Jesus' prediction of his denial. And then Peter went out and wept bitterly. That eye contact got to Peter. And maybe all of the disciples don't want to get too close to the cross because Jesus might look at them and they have to deal with the reality of what they just did to him. They have to deal with their sin if they look at him. Maybe they're not driven by fear. Maybe they're driven by shame. And maybe that's some of us today. Maybe it's just easier to keep our distance from Jesus because then we don't have to deal with the baggage we have. We don't have to deal with the shame of what we've done. We don't have to deal with the guilt that we're weighing, that we're weighed down with. Maybe we keep our distance just like these disciples because we don't want to look Jesus in the eye either. So ask yourself, would you be numbered among a group that kept its distance from the Savior? Because maybe you're keeping that distance right now. Maybe you're clinging to some sin that you just won't let go of, and as a result, you are distant from Jesus. Or maybe you're refusing to invest in your relationship with him, and because you're unwilling to make the necessary sacrifices to communicate with him, or to be present to worship him, or to step out of your comfort zone and serve him, then you're distant from him. It can be a variety of reasons why distance exists. 
But is that really the position you want to be in with Jesus? See, we've talked about the crowd, and we've talked about the soldiers, and we've talked about the disciples, so who's left? Let's talk about one criminal. I know there were two criminals there that day. But I want you to think specifically about one. Would you have been the criminal who acknowledged Jesus? In Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 43, here's what we read. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What I find fascinating is that the most unlikely candidate to stand up for Jesus was the one dying next to him. You know what makes this criminal so admirable? His acknowledgement. It was the criminal on the cross who came to Jesus' defense when the other guy insulted Jesus and challenged Jesus. This criminal, in effect, said, Jesus doesn't deserve this. He's innocent. We're guilty. We deserve this, but not him. And this criminal took a stand for Jesus that his own disciples weren't taking at this moment. So this criminal acknowledged that he deserved the cross. He admitted his guilt. In front of Jesus, he acknowledged his sin. John would later say in 1 John 1 and verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what this criminal is doing. He's declaring the innocence of Jesus and declaring the guilt of himself. And this criminal... This criminal is seeking Christ's mercy. Do you see that? The criminal not only recognized that he was deserving of death because of his sin, but he also recognized that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. So when the criminal said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he was acknowledging that Jesus will reign, that Jesus alone has the power to pardon sins. And guess what? In that moment, Jesus said what every one of us needs to hear and even wants to hear. Today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal reminds me of something Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 32 and 33. Jesus said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So ask yourself, if you were there that day, would you be numbered with the criminal? Not because you had done something deserving of punishment, 
But instead, would you be the one defending Jesus that day? Would you be the one admitting your sin that day? Would you be the one asking for Christ's mercy that day? Would you be the one acknowledging who Jesus is that day? Because if you want to live in eternal paradise, you have to be willing to be that one. This morning we go to Calvary and we look at these different people who are present there. Because we need to remember not only what Jesus did, but we also need to examine how we contributed to it. See, all of us are guilty. There's not one adult in here who hasn't sinned. All of us deserve what the criminal received, and all of us need what the criminal received. I want us to be reminded of what Christ did today, because it's through him and only through him that our sins can be forgiven. Let me close out with a, a poem that I came across. I did not write, and I do not know who the author was, but it's called One Guy Didn't. Three guys were tried for crimes against humanity. Two guys committed crimes. One guy didn't. Three guys were given government trials. Two guys had fair trials. One guy didn't. Three guys were whipped and beaten. Two guys had it coming. One guy didn't. Three guys were given crosses to carry. Two guys earned their crosses. One guy didn't. Three guys were mocked and spit at along the way. Two guys cursed and spit back. One guy didn't. Three guys were nailed to crosses. Two guys deserved it. One guy didn't. Three guys agonized over their abandonment. Two guys had reason to be abandoned. One guy didn't. Three guys knew death was coming. Two guys resisted. One guy didn't. One, two, three guys died on three crosses. Three days later, two guys remained in their graves. One guy didn't. Let's never forget what Christ did for us. Because we didn't deserve it. And he didn't deserve that. This morning as we're gathered here and we reflect on the cross, hopefully we're reminded, we're reminded of our own sin. And if your sin has not been paid for by the blood of Jesus, well, let me rephrase that. Because your sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. If you have not come in contact with that blood that washes away your sin, we want to invite you to do that today by confessing that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, you can come in contact with the blood that cleanses us. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Maybe you've made that decision, but you are distant from Jesus. Or maybe you've been too busy for Jesus. Or maybe you've been fickle or easily influenced and turned away from Jesus. 
Whatever your need is, we're gathered here on this Lord's Day so that we can help address it. And we can help, all, we can help each other be ready to one day hear that invitation into eternal paradise. If you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we 